Ecclesiastes 12, and I want us to look at verses 8 through the end of the book, to the end of the chapter, verse 14, and I want us to focus in on these final verses that really help us make sense of this enigmatic book. This is a difficult book, as was the Song of Solomon. The difficulties often tempt people to stay away from it, to steer clear of it, and not to delve deeply into it. This book is not meant to discourage us, as it is sometimes wrongly thought it is meant to stir us up and to give us a greater desire for the God who breathed it out. And so we're looking this evening at Ecclesiastes 12, verses 8 down to 14. And let me just briefly pray for us for the preaching of God's word again. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would, as the great shepherd of the church with your son and your spirit, speak a powerful word to us tonight. We pray that you would open the scriptures to our minds and hearts. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see you and hear you, that we would know that you have been in this place and that we would leave this place uh, being able to say that we have heard the voice of the Son of God, the voice of the Good Shepherd, and that we are desiring to follow you. And so, Lord Jesus, would you draw near to us and bless our time together? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 8, and this is a summary statement of the book. It is the second time that this statement is made in this book, and the preacher, Kohelet, now says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I was asked to do a graduation speech a number of years ago, a classical Christian school, and knowing a lot about that school and knowing much about the students, I thought, you know, I bet they've never heard a sermon out of Ecclesiastes, and I had never preached a sermon out of Ecclesiastes, and I had been meditating often on that verse uh, in Ecclesiastes 9, the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the strong, but time and chance happen to all of them. And I talked to that body of students about to graduate and mentioned how C.S. Lewis had been beat out by Daniel Day-Lewis's father to be the professor of Oriental poetry at Oxford University. I mentioned how Winston Churchill had often been defeated in every effort that he made, and much of their lives were in losing out, in missing out, in not getting what they thought they should get, and in many respects, in being beaten by people who were not as smart as them, as bright as them, by by those that probably didn't deserve to get the positions that they didn't get. And I ended that talk by saying at the end of the day, and what Ecclesiastes is driving us to ultimately in the canon of scripture, 
is that knowing the Lord Jesus and living for him and trusting in him and walking with him by faith is ultimately what matters. And it was like I sucked the air out of the room. And afterwards, no one said anything to me. And I, I told Anna on the way home, I think they hated that. And three weeks later, I had parent after parent and teacher after teacher telling me how great the graduation talk was because they had to process for three weeks the difficulty of what Ecclesiastes is teaching. That's one of the difficult things about this book is that um, we have to process what, what is it saying? What is it not saying? Um, what is the purpose of this book? I think, again, a lot of people come to Ecclesiastes and they come thinking that it is just a pessimistic book that, that it's meant to give you a real dose of life so that you'll come along and be more pessimistic and you won't be naively optimistic. That is not the purpose of Ecclesiastes. Yes, Ecclesiastes very, very clearly throughout says that everything is is vanity, that there is a futility. There are bookends in this book, chapter 1, verse 2, and here in chapter 12, verse 8, that there's inclusio. Everything in between that is bound up in that statement, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Um, We'll talk about this in a moment. Interestingly, you would expect Ecclesiastes actually to end at chapter 12, verse 8, but it doesn't. There are these further verses, and these further verses actually help us make sense of how we are not to just come away with a strongly pessimistic view of life, but we are to know how wisdom is to direct us through a world in which almost all of our experiences and activities and and difficulties and trials and ordinary daily events and actions that, that there is so much vanity to it, and yet wisdom would direct us. This is wisdom literature, just like the Proverbs. The same, the same person who wrote the Proverbs, many, most of the Proverbs, I believe is the same person that wrote Ecclesiastes, that it's most likely Solomon. The better part of the church has believed that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, that he was the preacher king. Um, we talked in the Song of Solomon that it was a shepherd king. Here we have a preacher king. And he is displaying his wisdom, and he's going to tell us here that he diligently worked to gather the best wisdom, and, and he wrote it with skill, and, and he, did it with, he did it with great eagerness and uprightness and truthfulness. Now, I want us to consider three things as we look at Ecclesiastes 12, 8 through 14 tonight. I want us to consider first the need for wisdom. Then I want us to consider the source of wisdom, and then finally the work of wisdom, the need for wisdom, the source of wisdom, and the work of wisdom. Now, as I've noted, there is that that sentence, and everything in between verse 8 of chapter 12 and verse 2 of chapter 1 is, is telling us about the futility of life. It's telling us about the difficulties of life, the trials of life, the unexpected things of life. It's telling us about the joys of life. It's telling us about the uncertainties of life. It's telling us about the inequalities of life. And and it's giving us a whole lot of realism. Um, I know, certainly for me, the older I've gotten, the more I feel my need for a book like this. Um, I remember when I was young, reading the first verse here, in chapter 12, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come 
and the years draw near which you say I have no pleasure in them. And I remember thinking as a boy, what, what, what are the evil days? And now I know. <laughs> I, I, I feel the evil days. The hard days come. When you're a child, everything's easy. You don't know what's coming down the, the pipeline. And yet that verse, that verse is sort of a summary of where this is going to move. Why do we need wisdom? Because life is difficult. Why do we need this wisdom in particular? Because life is full of uncertainties. Why do we need this? Because it's full of inequality. And if we are going to make it through life in a God-honoring way, we need the very precise wisdom that this book gives us. Now, Solomon, as I said, I believe wrote Ecclesiastes, at least the better part of it. Um, The wisdom that he displays in it is, on one hand, very similar to the wisdom of the Proverbs. Uh, He'll speak about foolishness and wisdom in contrast. That would be one similarity. But there is also a lot of dissimilarity in what Solomon's doing because Solomon is looking at wisdom and he is trying to guide God's people with divine wisdom to help them navigate the very treacherous paths of a life of vanity and futility. And he's going to do it in a very specific structure. I want to set this out for you just to help you as you think about this book sort of by way of introduction here. Um, He is going to give an opening statement in chapter 1 verse 1 through 11, and then he's going to tell us about the quest to find meaning in life in between chapters 1 and 6. There's a quest. What is life about? What is my life about? What, What am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to be thinking about this thing called life that I'm living in and all of the the attendant circumstances of it? So there is a quest to find meaning. And then from chapter 7 to chapter 11, he talks about how believers are to understand the contrast between wisdom and folly in a life of vanity, how those things are working together. And then here in this final chapter, he ends appropriately by talking about death. It's very interesting. There is a very logical flow to this. And um, what we need to understand is that we need all those parts to this book. We need first to understand how we're supposed to approach the meaning of life. We need the wisdom of this book so that we can then understand how we are to live uh, either wisely or foolishly, how those who have wisdom should live in this vain and fallen world, how those who act foolishly live, and the similarities and the contrast, the experiences between wisdom and folly in this fallen world, and we need this book because we are all going to die. And this book is going to guide us to live lives of wisdom in light of our pending deaths. Um, It's very fitting how this book ends. Well, um, I want to note that we need that wisdom because we also need hope. Part of what Ecclesiastes has been talking about is why am I never satisfied with created things, even good created things? Why can they never satisfy? Where, where is real pleasure found? Where is real satisfaction found? Listen to this. Douglas O'Donnell, a commentator on Ecclesiastes, says, we should be glad that the final word in this book is not Ecclesiastes 12.8. I want you to get that. We should be glad 
The final word in this book is not Ecclesiastes 12.8, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. David Gibson explains the significance of these words in, in uh, verse 9 through 14 when he says, it is a sad irony that many find Ecclesiastes to be a gloomy or pessimistic book or are left unable to make any sense of it when it was actually written to bring us pleasure. Very interesting. It was actually written, and we'll, we'll see how that happens, was actually written to bring us pleasure. Now, as we acknowledge the need for wisdom, I want us to consider what this book says about the source of wisdom. And really, these verses, these subsequent verses to verse 8, are some of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. Um, they, on one hand, give us a robust doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. They teach us about the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the infallibility of Scripture. Those are categories that we as Protestants cherish more than anything. God's Word is inspired by God through human authors. It is perfectly without error, and it is perfectly an infallible rule of faith and practice. And we'll see as we look at these words, notice that, that uh, whoever is speaking here, and there's debate, some theologians say that there's been a change, that Solomon's written the whole book up to verse 8, now there's, uh, it seems like a different voice speaking about him in the third person and talking about what he did, and maybe there was someone that God used to compile this, and and that these final words were written by someone other than Solomon. But what we know is that Solomon himself, as the author of the book, notice this, verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, arranging many proverbs with great care. Now, 1 Kings 4.32 says that Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs. And many of those find their way into the book of Proverbs, and many of the other ones find their way into this book. And then many other ones don't find their way into God's word and are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you may say, what? How do you know that? Well, because Solomon tells us here. He says, he taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, arranging many proverbs with great care. He sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, here, Solomon is talking about the human authorship of Scripture, and he's acknowledging that he was a tool that the Holy Spirit used. We have a doctrine, we, we talk about the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, that God has breathed out every part of Scripture in its historical context through its human author, and Solomon was one of those authors. And what Solomon says here about himself and about that, that application to divine wisdom as he is being used by God as the human author of this can be said about every other human author of Scripture. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all of the apostles, all of the evangelists, uh, Moses, all, all the Scripture was written by human authors who gave themselves to the task that Solomon here had given himself to as God had called him. Now, Solomon is going to talk about three things that he does in writing this book in particular. And I want you to notice this. Notice this. 
in verse 10, he says, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and or, I'm sorry, he arranged many proverbs with great care. He sought to find words of delight, and uprightly, he wrote words of truth. There are three things here. First, um, as the source of wisdom, he is writing this book with a logical precision. He said he, he logically arranged wisdom. He put these things together in a specific order, and so we are to, we are to value that. We are to understand that, that, that what he says is being said in a particular context. There is a logical precision to how he's writing this. And then, secondly, notice he says that he sought to find words of delight. Here I think he's talking about the style. He wrote beautiful words. He wrote, he wrote words that um, had a stylistic beauty to them. Um, I want to read to you something that Phil Riken pointed out. He says, this is the book that gave us phrases like, the sun also rises. To everything there's a season, eternity in the hearts of men, pasture bread upon the waters, the almond tree blossoms, and man does not know his time. These are some of the stylistic creations in which Solomon is giving wisdom in this book. He is diligent to do that. And then Third, in addition to logic and beauty, he is writing words of truth and uprightness. There's no intent to deceive. This is not like ancient Near Eastern pagan wisdom literature. This is not, this is not human production. These are words of truth. These are right and wise words for all men for all time. They are true and right, and they, they have been written with Solomon having an upright heart and motive in writing them. Now remember, Solomon had prayed for that wisdom, hadn't he? And God had given him that wisdom. And so this is not Solomon going out and just gathering human compositions and trying to get the best of, of this nation's culture and the best of this nation's culture and a little bit of this and then throwing in some of his experience. He does talk about his experience, but th this is a man who has prayed to God for wisdom, and God has given him that wisdom, and so he has written these things in those very specific ways. But, but we would be remiss if we stopped there. And let me say this tonight. No amount of admiring the Bible's literary greatness will ever convince you that it's God's word. No amount of admiring the Bible's literary greatness will ever convince someone it's God's word. Politicians cite the scriptures all the time and don't believe a single word of them. Um, the Westminster Confession in that opening chapter says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes in the way of man's salvation, we can sit back and see all those brilliant things that are woven into the fabric of Scripture and still not be fully convinced. And the confession goes on to say, yet our full persuasion of the infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Now, this is a series about Christ, and we're going to get to Christ right now, because 
Um, all that Solomon is saying is moving now to explain who the divine author of Scripture is. And notice this great verse. In verse 11, he says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, um, a goad was an instrument that a animal herder would use, perhaps a goat herder or a sheep herder, and it was meant to prod and poke the animal. It was meant to hurt the animal to some degree, and yet not to wound the animal, but to press the animal forward and to keep the flock together. And what Solomon is saying is that there is something about God's word and God's wisdom, and this is where we need to listen very carefully. There is something uncomfortable about reading the Bible. You know, it hit me as a young Christian, I'd be witnessing to people and ask them if they ever read their Bible, and they'd always say no, but they always had a thousand objections to the Bible. And, and so I finally just started saying, you know, the reason you don't like to read the Bible is because it cuts you to the heart. And they would say, you're right. The reason people don't read God's word is because it is like a goad that he uses to cut us. I read through five or six chapters of Proverbs not that long ago, and it was so overwhelmingly convicting. That's what the word is supposed to do, because we're sinful. Um, there is, remember how the Apostle John um, envisions the Lord Jesus in Revelation, and he says he has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. What's that? That's a symbol that God's word both judges and saves. It warns and it promises. The writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and all is laid bare before God by means of the word. And it's very interesting I actually think, I can't prove this, I actually think this verse ends up in the New Testament in the conversion of the Apostle Paul. When Paul is giving his testimony before King Agrippa, and he's explaining what happened to him when he was blinded on the Damascus Road, he says that the Lord Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the good. It's hard for you. What, what, what does he have in mind? I'm, always just assume that what Jesus was saying to Paul was, you know the scriptures, you know the Old Testament. These are about me. They, they were meant to drive you to me. They were meant to compel you forward to me. The warnings, the harsh, the, the, the severe words of scripture are meant to drive us into the loving and compassionate arms of Jesus. They're meant to go to us to the shepherd to keep us within the fold, to fix us. Notice the, the writer here says the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They, they're immovable. They are, they are fixed. Everything else that you read, every other philosophy, every other 
every other ideology, every other literary composition is like a, a loose nail about to fall out of the wall. These are fixed. These are sure. These are going nowhere. They are immovable because of the very words of God. And notice that the writer says here they are given by one shepherd. Now, in the Old Testament, and clearly in this context historically, he is talking about Yahweh's relationship to Israel. Remember that Yahweh often uh, related to his people as the shepherd all the way back to the days of Jacob when Jacob is telling Joseph and giving the blessing in Genesis 48, and he says, the God who has shepherded me all my life. They knew back then that the covenant Lord was the shepherd of his people, that he fed his people, that he protected his people, that he guided his people, that he went after his people when they strayed. He understood that that relationship, that illustration was the best illustration as he looked back on his hard, long life, a life of which he said, few and evil have been my days. The same man could say to his son, after being reconciled to him, after having lost him, the God who has shepherded me. And then you know how this comes up in the Psalm, Psalm 23, Psalm 81. The Lord is our shepherd. He's the shepherd of Israel. And then Ezekiel, God is contrasting himself with the evil shepherds who don't care about the people, who don't warn the people, who don't feed the people, who only feed themselves. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you shepherds who are going to shepherd you. And he is the source of the care of his people. And then ultimately Jesus comes, Yahweh in the flesh, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I give my life for my sheep. And, and then Peter will pick up, won't he, on that illustration, and he'll say, when the chief shepherd appears, he's the chief shepherd, and the writer of Hebrews in that great benediction will say, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete. We have a shepherd. I... I was a brand new Christian working in a restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina, and trying to witness to all the coworkers at apropos times. And on one occasion, there was a young hostile coworker who said to me, you know, Christians are just sheep. And I said, yeah, well, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. He had grown up Roman Catholic. I didn't know that was a special thing to Roman Catholics. My sheep hear my voice. The good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I call my own. My sheep hear my voice and they follow. Now, why is that important? Well, if the words of the wise are like goats, and if the words of the collectors of sentences, the masters of sentences, those who God inspired to write scripture, if, if they are immovable, and they're given by one shepherd, then that means, de facto, that all the words that are breathed out in the Bible are the words of the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, the great prophet of the church. Um, Phil Riken again, says, what Ecclesiastes says about the shepherd's words takes on 
and even greater force when we remember that our shepherd is also our savior. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Thus, the words that we read in Ecclesiastes are really his words. Really his words. Jesus is the one who calls us away from the vanity of life without God to find joy and meaning in his grace. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is the one who calls us away from the vanity of life without God to find joy and meaning in his grace. We are not just living under the sun, we are living under the S-O-N, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, again, you can read the Bible and never hear the voice of the Son of God. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are those that testify of me and you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He said to the Pharisees, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. We heard this morning from Pastor Cosby that Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. He's the eternal savior, he's the eternal God, he's the eternal shepherd, he's the one that's breathed out all his word. In, in John six, and this is very important, to what we're considering. Jesus has just fed the multitudes with that great miraculous feeding, and the people, instead of seeing that that pointed to who he actually was, and instead of trusting in him, they said to him, Lord, how can we multiply bread miraculously? Show us how we can do the works of God. And and Jesus begins to unpack, and this is the work of God that you would believe in his son. And, And And then he goes into that discourse about all that the Father gives me will come to me, and one that comes to me I'll never cast out. And and he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live because of me, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Um, And the people hated it. The most wonderful heavenly word ever spoken, and they hate it. And they can't stand it. And probably up close to 20,000 people go away. Jesus let a megachurch walk away. He just let a megachurch just leave. And he's left with the 11. And he turns to the 12. Judas is there. And he says, will you go away also? And Peter very quickly responds, you have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the right response to hearing the voice of the Son in Scripture. So that whether I'm reading Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or Song of Solomon or Leviticus or Ezekiel or Daniel or Hebrews or Romans or Galatians or Revelation or the Gospel of John, if I'm a believer, I am reading that to hear the voice of the great prophet of the church. Jesus' prophetic ministry doesn't get enough attention, I don't think, you know. He's the great prophet. All the other prophets spoke by the Spirit of Christ. He was speaking in them and through them. He was revealing the things about himself through them. He is the living word by which we get the written word. Um. I want us to just briefly consider the work of wisdom and 
very quickly notice the contrast to the inspired word of the Lord Jesus. Notice verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. That's a strong word in our day. He's not saying don't read any other books but the Bible. He's certainly not saying no creed but Christ. But he is saying we are to be cautious about anything written that is merely a human composition that we are to be cautious about receiving philosophies. Everything Paul warns about in Colossians, we are to be cautious about whatever we're hearing that is not breathed out by God because at the end of the day, this is the standard for Christians making it through this vain, futile, fallen, and messy world. And we know that the making of many books, there's no end. Much study is weary to, is weary to the flesh. And then notice he ends at the end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, you could read these final words, and you could feel incredible unrest, because if we're honest, we all know that we have done so much wrong in life that on the last day is going to be exposed, laid bare, Every secret thought, every covetous thought, every lustful thought, every proud thought, every greedy thought, every murderous, angry thought. Um, I think we have to approach this in two ways. The wisdom that we get from our shepherd, the Lord Jesus, is meant to drive us to the God who is wisdom himself and to seek satisfaction and pleasure in him, not in the things of this life, and to approach him with reverence. That word fear means to revere him, to to acknowledge who he is as the creator, as the infinite God, and to live our lives before him, and to do those things that are pleasing before him when everything else around us is vanity. Um, And I want to say this tonight, very briefly. There is only one person who has ever walked this planet, who has ever done what we're being commanded to do here perfectly, the Lord Jesus. You know, it's interesting that the New Testament actually highlights the fact that Jesus lived in the fear of God according to his humanity. That the writer of Hebrews says he was heard in the garden with his cries and his prayers. The writer of Hebrews says he was heard for his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things he suffered. That that he stood in the place of his people. This too is, is supposed to make us feel uneasy and to say, how can I ever stand on Judgment Day? How could I ever stand with all the sin that I've done? If God's going to bring all those things into judgment, and he's going to, that's a fixed word. How can I ever stand? I am undone. But this book belongs with the other books given by the one shepherd, And they are driving us to the one who obeyed perfectly, who feared God perfectly as the representative of his people, as the one who is the wisdom of God himself, as the last Adam, as the true Israel, 
who comes as our representative, who takes all of the iniquity, all of the evil for which we should be judged on himself on the cross, all of it. So that, and this is the amazing thing, the God who breathed out all of these words is the God who then goes to the cross in the place of his people for all of our violations of them. And then he rises from the dead, he pours his spirit out into the hearts of his people, he makes us love his word, and he empowers us to run the course of his commandments. Not perfectly, but truly and sincerely. And when we fail, we go back to him. And when he strengthens us again, we go back in the way of righteousness. And we go depending wholly on the words that he has breathed out in Scripture. It's a beautiful, reciprocal work of the Lord Jesus for us. I want to just leave you with a couple thoughts tonight. Um, First, I want to ask if you have ever seen your need for wisdom. It's a big question. Have you ever said, I need wisdom, I lack wisdom? James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives liberally and without partiality, and it will be done for him. Have you ever seen your need for wisdom? Secondly, I want to ask, have you come to a place where you're settled on the source of finding wisdom and know why we find wisdom there? And then I want to ask you if you are um, desiring to live in light of the work of wisdom, what divine wisdom is meant to do in our lives in light of the Lord Jesus. I hope this will be an encouragement to you as you consider these things, that you'll be going back to Ecclesiastes, that you'll go to the Proverbs, as we heard recently, Song of Solomon, and you'll be mining the wisdom literature so that you'll hear more of the voice of the Son of God in it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us to hear the voice of your Son in new and fresh ways. We are astonished that you have ever made us hear the voice of Christ in the first place. Lord Jesus, we with Simon Peter say tonight, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And Lord, we do pray that you would make us a people who love the divine wisdom that you have breathed out in Scripture. We pray that you would make us a people who understand that wisdom in light of who you are, Lord Jesus, in light of what you've done. We pray that you would work it deeply into our minds and hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.